Yeah, I just I, I record everything from the top in case <laughs> in case you know nectar flows. That's why I love recording because it, it's not like a live stream where you know. True. You have an audience. You have the audience oppressing uh, your own uh, flow of uh, you know conversation. But anyways, how have you been, man? Um, I'm doing. No, I mean, how, how have you been? Like just uh, keeping it keeping it going. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been I've been really busy. I've been uh, putting on a lot of content. I'm gonna trail off a little bit the last two weeks to December to take stock of things, take a bit of a break, and then go back to it in January. Yeah, I feel like December is like the big, the big time. You know, December is always like, well, you know, there's like millennial and there's other things and there's. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um anyways, uh I never I never get to it. It'll be like an hour before I get to it. Um <laughs> introductions. So just give, give I guess give your blurb and uh what we're going to talk about today. So I'm sure my like a lot of my audience um sorry, someone someone um I'm getting distracted on, on my tele my telegram. Uh, someone's asking you for the uh, Carolyn Ellison erotica, but um, that was unfortunate. Did you catch the last digital Cabello go where I um, crewed had to mute me because I, I kept reading it. So no, no, I didn't. <laughs> I'll pin the weasel. Um, <laughs> wow. Well, we could get to the FTX thing. I guess that's kind of pertinent. Um, if these are the new aristocrats of her age, uh, mm-hmm. but anyways, um, Praise the folly. Give give us your your quick um, CV, and also what we're going to talk about today. So right, right, yeah. So uh, I'm Praise the Folly from Praise the Folly podcast. Uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter, Telegram, Facebook. Also, you can support me on Locals, buy me a coffee, and subscribe star. Uh, basically, what I do is I have a Monday Tuesday show where I talk about whatever I want, a Wednesday show where I talk about church history, and a Saturday show. Where me and Logos, a uh, co-host of mine, are going through Menjus Moldbug's entire work, mm-hmm. uh, called "Escaping the Moldbug Matrix." And uh, today's uh, today's discussion. I know the name of this podcast is called "Content Minded." You're sort of a culture guy, art guy. One of the criticisms that many people in our sphere have is, "Why is art so bad? Why <laughs> can't, why can't we get the kind of stories that we want anymore?" And I feel the same way. And, of course, Lewis and Tolkien felt the same way 80 years ago. So it's, it's not a new problem. And I started thinking about, well, well, why is this the case? What, what can explain this malaise of art and culture? Yes. And I was looking at the four levels of simulation that Baudrillard in Simulacra and Simulation describes. And I realized that, coupled with an understanding of uh, technology that Jacques Ellul provides – gives us an explanation for why culture is, is, is so bad right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah. So basically I was watching your video where you go into this about the nature of the simulation and, and, uh, and culture and aesthetic production. I think that it's certainly interesting to see how um, the sort of like, later iterations of postmodern thought. I mean, nowadays in academic philosophy, I mean, could you even say that there's a a current moment the way that there was, I think like, you know, 
eighties to nineties postmodernism was probably like the last gasp. But it's very interesting how the sort of like the ultimate like uh, the apex of like French uh, continental theory nowadays. I mean, gets blended in with you know curmudgeon core analysis by people like uh, Uncle Ted or Lash or um, you know some a lot of the situationists. It seems like this is a weird mix because. On the one hand, I mean, the linguistification of reality that the postmodernists provided, um, or sort of like, you know, the linguistic turn in philosophy also coincided with, I think, the linguistic turn in pretty much everywhere else in life. Um, it seems that, but nowadays we're seeing, like, of course, in a strange way that everything becomes language, we're seeing this odd death of language and that the image becomes the sort of supplicant for language. But I don't know, like, so how did you come to this observation? I mean, there's a lot there. But how would you, like, square the circle of saying that, you know, a postmodern thinker like Baudrillard could fit with someone like Elul or Lewis Mumford or, you know, Uncle Ted? Yeah, yeah. So the the first thing is I read Simulacrum Simulation uh, about a year ago. And prior to that, I was sort of... Because for me, this question of why is modern art, why is modern culture so bad, was a, was a question that I've been wrestling with for well over a decade. And I was starting to realize that the stories that I liked, because they had good content, you know, good characters, developed characters, you know, complete story arcs, they all started to end around the late 19th, early 20th century. Hmm. And then they started the stories that I don't like with the flat wooden characters, the contrived arcs, the, the bad kind of escapism begins around the early 20th century. And I identified uh, from my point of view. So for example, Conan series and kill the conqueror with Howard. And then the Prince. Yeah. Of yeah the that's Con really controversial with my audience. I mean, go yeah. ahead. Well, let's go into your thing, but then please comment on why you hate Conan. <laughs> <laughs> that's really my i have a few friends that would probably uh, try to track you down for that take but yeah uh, no, well, the, the other thing is let, let me let me finish the point first so they don't get into conan so the other one is uh edgar rice burroughs who did tarzan and princess of mars so yeah that, that's the other they all sort of are the first pulp action heroes that's more or less what you call them so i already mentioned escapism so let's go back to an earlier point Tolkien was accused of escapism by the cultural yeah. critics of his own day. And Lewis was accused of escapism as well. So the the point for the works of Lewis and Tolkien, and but specifically Narnia, can be found in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. At the very end, when Lucy and Edmund are told that they're too old to ever return to Narnia, Aslan says that I brought you to Narnia so that you might learn to know me here so that you can serve me better in your world okay so mm -hmm. the kind of escapism that lewis and tolkien are trying to do is the kind of escapism because they, they already they wouldn't have had the term clown world but they were already beginning to see clown world like you know tolkien called the internal combustion engine a mordor machine and they're like well how do we you know preserve the truths and the values that we have well we're gonna have to tell stories that will expose them to new generations mm. which in this case, there are fantastical settings, right? There's orcs, there's dragons, there's witches, whatever. But they, they're they there to bring new audiences to these older truths. But there's another kind of escapism. Where, like, you have the clown world, 
and you want more of it, right? You yeah. Can, you can sort of see that like today with a lot of woke productions. They, they're like, reality is still too grounded for them. They need to have more uh, disconnected, more unhinged. And so that's why I make the distinction between good and bad escapism. Good escapism says, yeah, Clone World's bad. So we need to bring people back to concepts and ideas and stories that reflect what we all used to know. And then there's bad mm -hmm. escapism, which says, well, no, we want more clown roll. We want, we want to, we want to dial this up all the way to like, you know, you know, BDSM sessions with furries. Right. That's, that's where we're <laughs> So, you know, well, so the, the dog, the pup play guy in the, in the U S military. I mean, that's that went viral recently, but it's like the fact that like, kink become oh well let's talk about that with the paywall version of it but you know, the the that portion but you know it is funny that kink becomes this like acceptable norm like um like it becomes the sort of the titillation of it is destroyed i mean this is what bojard said as well and this you know is mm -hmm. one essay which we can talk about but anyways yeah sorry i cut you off praise go ahead yeah, so so then the question is, okay, well, why do I consider Howard and Burroughs bad escapism? Because if we look at the action hero in Pulp, and we see that ultimately nothing's at stake. Nobody's going to ever Conan. Nobody's going to ever kill uh, Tarzan. No one's going to ever kill John Carter. And they're, the reason why they win is because. It's just because, guys, because the author wants them to win. And so it removes all tension. It removes all suspense. Um, if you cut a bloody trail like they do uh, through people, you're going to have a bunch of angry relatives hounding you down to kill you. Uh, now let's let's go back to another very violent story, the Iliad. Mm. Um, you kill a bunch of people, it's going to catch up with you. And a lot of the heroes on the Greek side, even though they technically win, they come to bad ends because... There's this, there's, there's this cause and effect with what you do, right? So what Tolkien and Lewis are preserving is that if you do something, there's going to be a reaction to that. Could be good, could be bad, depending on the choice that you made. Whereas I would argue Pulp removes that. There's no, and, and all of modern fiction today that's bad is seeking to remove that. It's escaping from consequences. And so you're saying that that Conan. Uh, was like the first pop culture iteration of like the female equivalent would be like the Mary Sue or like the Invincible. Yes. Well, and, the, and first, I guess they, the, the first yeah, one would actually be uh, John Carter, Princess of Mars. But yeah, it's the. Yeah. No, but what about high literature at the time, like the turn of the 20th century, like with the 20th century novel, like, uh, you know, Toni Morrison or um, Sia Wyndham Lewis or. Uh, you know, I mean, even like the modern ones nowadays, I mean, who reads novels anymore, right? Like, I mean, yeah, I guess right. people still read Franson and they'll read, um, you know, God Rest His Soul, um, David Foster Wallace, or like even like in the 20th century, like late 20th century, you had, um, you know, the new journalist people, like you had uh, Tom Wolfe, uh, you you know, um, what, who, who else am I thinking of? Uh the one that wrote um, Cold Blood. Oh, yeah, yeah, Capote. Like, like you know, like, I mean, at that yeah. time, but you're more focusing on, like, what is mass appeal pop culture, like, what people, like, the right. mass, yeah, what most people have, like, their aesthetic picture of, like, what Well, well more, more of, of art is. is. Where do these ideas start? So I'm not saying yeah. that the 20th century 
I love Lord of the Rings. Norman Mailer, that's the tip of my tongue. Norman Mailer, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I love Lord of the Rings. I love Narnia. There's there is still good literature in the 20th century. That's that's not the argument I'm making, but that the kind of trends that we will now recognize today, like say Ray in Episode Seven, Gary, you know Mary Sue, all of these trends that we hate uh, and dislike on the right. Uh, and even, you know, just normies that are just want something sane and rational again. I think that these ideas are kind of starting all in the early 20th century with pulp. Um, and and then it goes into radio, it goes into all these other avenues. You know, Hollywood does its own thing. Part of it is media limitation. Obviously, books are different. You can you can you can tell complex stories in a book, but radio and t- movies less so. So the medium does put constraints. That's why adapting a book into a movie always means you have to lose something because there's a limitation in the form of the moving picture. And so, but I'm sort of getting sidetracked. You asked me, how did I get to Baudrillard? Well, I'm like, there's got to be something that ties all this together because I was sort of groping towards this point. And I remember hearing about Baudrillard probably from The Matrix because I know he was mentioned in there at least tacitly yeah even he hated the matrix though <laughs> he hated it yeah so i yeah. i finally looked him up and i i watched some videos of people talking about him and i'm like this this might be the kind of guy that ties everything together for me and then when i read simulacra on simulation i realized that it did and okay then the next question was how does this tie into the sort of like tech skepticism of uncle ted and someone like jacques Ellul and others and I, think, I think the way that it ties in is that his 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 over underlying critique of the simulation is a sort of critique of capitalism, which again is popular with French philosophy. Yeah. But here's the thing, though. What what Alul tells us, though, is that what what capitalism and communism have in common is more than what they have in uh, indifference. This this uh, slavish uh, service to technique, and when you realize that, you realize that. Baudrillard is not when he, by he's not going far enough. He's looking at the capitalist commodification structure, but it's like you can go deeper because what he's what he dislikes about capitalism, you're also going to dislike about communism, right? And then that just digs even deeper until you get to Uncle Ted, is what I would say. Well, I think because w- with Uncle Ted, you have the sort of technique itself becomes the source of one's own motivations and one's own pursuits and how um, technology has a weird ideological, I mean, Mumford said this, that technology has a weird ideological facet to it where its own furtherance and progress becomes the sum total of human existence. But then on the back end, you know, the classic Ted Kaczynskian point of it atrophies your natural abilities, but more than that, it supplants you with pseudo, uh, identifications and pseudo events and pseudo what did he call it um the power process yeah the power process but also he called it pseudo identity uh what do they call it pseudo pursuits or um something like that like like basically false goals and false pursuits yeah 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 Yeah, is pseudo yeah i I know pseudo pseudo identifications one but there's also um there's another word for it but yeah so i guess bojard is essentially making a point but about a specific manifestation of how um communicative technology has manifested to the point where all of life becomes consumed in its wake and it's not that 
like again, like I, I agree with uh, Sam Chris's critique of the Matrix. Like he was commenting on the new one. Like I didn't see the new one, but I, I heard it's terrible. Um, like it's got like a lot of woke garbage, and it's got like a lot of self awareness, which always destroys a franchise when it's too self aware, especially that nature of like that theory fiction stuff. But he said that the Matrix essentially concretizes um, the whole pursuit of like what Baudrillard, like it, it concretizes the whole picture of what a simulation is. It's saying that you're like in a matrix and you're like in you're a human battery. And it's like, it gives a form, a materialistic form to it. Whereas Baudrillard, he hated the matrix because he's saying it's not like, it's not like this chud brain, like black mirror, um, the technology bad or uh, the matrix. I'm not reliving the real life. I'm in Plato's cave. It's like the first year philosophy stuff. You know, when they write essays about uh -huh. the Matrix and the Plato's Cave. It's it's more of like, you can't tell the difference between what is narrative being and what is the real. That's the whole point. Like, it's not saying, like, you got to escape the Plato's Cave. Like, it's just, <laughs> I, I'm doing, I'm doing like the, the, the uh -huh. you know, when Trump did the hands and people like roasted him for it, you know, uh -huh. like, oh, no, I don't understand. Like, <laughs> I, I gotta stop doing that. I'm gonna. Anyways, anyways, I, I know it's very offensive, but go ahead, praise. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just rambling right now. No, no, that's okay. But you, you brought up Trump, so I have to bring up the snake. Do you remember the snake poem? Yeah, yo, but the snake was the best part of Trump. I mean, that was, <laughs> you know, when he said it, it was like, it was like a rock star, or it was like um, a, a well-timed, you know, performance piece where he's like. <laughs> you know, shut up, silly woman. And when the snake scrawled with a grin, uh, you should have known you knew damn well I was a snake. And then when he would say, When you let me in, and the crowd would just like go nuts, like that mm -hmm. was, you know, yeah, it was about immigrants, so that was pretty based. Uh, but anyways, go we were gonna <laughs> yeah, say yeah. about Trump, yeah, no, no, yeah, that was all I wanted to say about Trump, but uh, oh. yeah, the so this, this well, Trump's a creature of the simulation, but we'll. That's a pretty, well, that's for that's sure. Pretty old take, I mean, but you know. that's for sure. <laughs> but um, so this is two things. So one, I think it might be helpful to briefly find and, and overview the uh, the th the four levels of simulation. Right. The first level of simulation is uh, is an attempt to accurately reproduce something real. The second order of simulation is an attempt to hide what's there. The third order is to hide what's not there. Mm. Fourth order makes reference to nothing at all, which he calls hyper reality, which means it refers only to itself. Right. And so I would argue that really, really the Ukraine war is sort of uh, the first hyper Blue yellow. I am paranoid about the YouTube. Uh, oh, right. I think you could say Ukraine. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Blue. Yellow. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it's um, it's the first hyper real war. And, but yeah. but this is I think pertinent to to your concerns of, of culture. I think that there's four. Okay, well first of all, I think we need to define culture, and you can tell me if you agree with this. Mm. Uh, culture can be defined in one of two senses, right? A a living uh, organic body of people. We must have like a culture of bacteria or a culture of people. They're they're living together in this organic group, and then then. Culture. It's influenced by many things, yeah, like yeah. their location, their temperament, their you know, national character, blah, 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 yeah. And then there's cultural artifacts, which are those things they create, music, literature, uh, you know, paintings, etc. Diseases, so, yeah. Yeah. 
So I'll, I'll call culture uh, the sort of living together of these people and cultural artifacts, the things that they produce that we don't see anymore that we want to see. Um, the dissident right and, and many other people have seemed to think that you start by producing the cultural artifacts. Mm -hmm. You don't. The cultural artifacts themselves are the product of an already existing culture. Somebody might say, right. well, didn't Lewis and Tolkien do that? Y yeah, but they're edge cases, right? They're... they're <laughs> Good. No, but I was gonna say they they produced from material that was already present within European civilization yeah. to begin with. So yeah. yeah, and so that that's the that's the other way, right? If you can't experience it directly, uh, like they couldn't, you can experience it indirectly through through uh, the the literature of of Western civilization, right? And, and so when when I say uh, culture artifacts are quote good culture artifacts when they are the expression of such an embodied lived existence among a people mm. and bad cultural artifacts are those that are not. So how does Baudrillard tie into this? Well, the bad culture we have today is the product of third and fourth level simulations, which is not the product of lived rooted experiences like say, you know, the divine comedy was. Right. And I think that goes a long way in explaining in, a, in, a, in an actual, you know, practical fashion what the problem is here. So let me give you an example. Growing up, uh, what well got me started on my, uh, I'm old enough to remember when Age of Empires Rise of Rome was a new game, 1997. Uh, I loved Age of Empires growing up. And so I got involved into history. I'd call that probably a first order simulation. It's trying to be kind of real, but it's also trying to be fun. And I thought, man, you know, with computer technology, we're going to get amazing games 20 years out. And 20 mm. years out, you know, the games are garbage. <laughs> They're a hot mess. And it's like, wait a minute. Why, why don't we have these really cool simulation games that are like Antiquity or the Middle Ages, like the two Age of Empires 1 and 2 games? Well, part of it is, is the simulation grows and expands people's contact with reality uh, or real cultures is diminished. And so they lack the very creative ideas to produce it. Unless they were to read the books, which they don't, um, they can only make reference to other simulations. Mm -hmm. And it's this process of only making reference to other simulations that makes modern cultural artifacts so bad. Well, I think, yeah, I, I think politics operates this way as well. Um, so, for example, yeah, I, I did this essay many years ago. Not many years ago. I, I shouldn't say it, but it seems like since 2016, time has accelerated during the uh, Trumpian and post-Trumpian era. Um, TCE, if you will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it seems that time has sped up. And it's I do you, do you remember when Ready Player One came out? Was that 2019 or 2018? No, oh, that must have been 2017, 2018. No, I don't. Yeah, um, this is going to bother me. This is, this is really going to bother. Let me just quickly. I wrote this essay for um the th for Thermidor magazine way back in the day, so it must have been 2017. And I had to endure um the actually going to the cinema with my two best friends, and we were like, okay, this is going to be terrible, but we're doing it. Oh, 2018. There you go. It was the last year Thermidor was around. So I wrote this review of it about like how it's the, the ultimate movie of the postmodern condition because it's essentially like Spielbergo. Um, <laughs> see, again, 
I, I I'm doing it right now. I made that reference from the early Simpsons. Like I, I, I swear, I swear to God, if, if I made a wrong turn in life, if I discovered, uh, I don't know. Um, if I discovered like, uh, Kropotkin as opposed to like Julius Evola, I could have been an irony leftist because I could have been a Chapo dirtbag. Cause like, think of it. I love early Simpsons references, Sopranos references, you know, I could, I could have been that, but anyways, thank God, you know? Um, anyways, so Ready Player One was like the ultimate Spielbergo. Like um, I'm referencing all of this cultural ephemera, like mostly from pop, 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 pop culture cinema. And the whole film is constitutive of just a very high tech overlay to film like Hollywood referencing itself over and over again. And really it's like the distinction becomes a language onto its own. Like you point to, um, you know, and there's moments in it, like you could just point to, oh, that's the room, the Red Room and the Shining. Oh, that's um, E.T. Uh, oh, that's, you know, whatever, like, let, think of like whatever big blockbuster Spielberg produced. Like, name yeah. me some. Um, I, I can even forget now. Um, what's a big Spielberg Jurassic blockbuster? Jurassic Park, right? That Jurassic was... Park, yeah, Jurassic Park was there. Um, he did Jurassic Park. I think that was Spielberg, yeah. I... Again, this is bothering me now. Let's see. Let's let's go through the list. So, Spiel, <laughs> this guy's more creative than Spielberg. <laughs> that's again, that's another Sopranos, um, you know, Johnny Sack reference. Indiana Jones was there. Um, he did Columbo. I didn't know he did Columbo. He did the color. Oh, he did the color purple. That was the creepy scene where Whoopi is. Uh, you know, never mind. Never mind. Yeah, Saving Private Ryan, War of the Worlds, West Side Story. Man, Spielberg like really is the cultural ergregore of like the the American Empire. You could really you really see it. You know what I mean? So, it, so anyways, Ready Player One was like sort of this love fest for whatever like DreamWorks or whatever you know big budget anime you know studio work like whether it be Jurassic Park or um, you know Tintin, Lincoln, uh, you know you name it, right? Uh -huh. Like it's I don't think they reference Schindler's List for obvious reasons. But it's so. But when you have this panacea of pop culture that only refers to itself, then all of life and politics becomes a. So, the the reason in part why uh, this is happening is because as uh, you know, industrial civilization uh, rolls out and uh, separates people further and further from themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, a really good short story that anybody should read is. Uh, E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops. This guy in 1909 is predicting the internet and uh, people living in pods. It's really eerie. Mm. And he talks about he basically could foresee the kind of insane living conditions that we have now. And, and now we don't really have any contact with each other even, right? Let alone something real. So part of the problem so let's let's go let's go look at Star Wars episode 7 right the one that everybody loves to hate on cuz it is a yeah. hyper real hot mess it, it only refers to Star Wars and you can argue plausibly that there is some malevolence involved here but if we look at the actual people doing the creating these are probably millennials right and these are yeah. these are people that don't know what happened before 1945 
or or maybe even before 1990. Let's be honest; they don't know yeah. what happened before 1990. Well, what happened in 1945 that becomes narrativized, and, and that becomes the mythos that drives yeah. the modern world. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and so they're operating from only what they know, right? And they live in this sort of like mechanical womb of the machine, and they don't know anything else. So, so in in some sense, you can say, yeah, there's malevolence, but in another sense given the kind of people we're talking about who, who are successful in Hollywood, who make it to this level to work on episode seven, they don't know anything else. And they themselves are the result of this broader process of simulation construction that unless somebody was to be really, you know, self-motivated to start reading books again, you know, good luck with Mm -hmm. that demographic. Um, then yeah, you're just not going to know. So part of it is you could say malevolent, but I think part of it is just this sort of like force of history. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that's the, that's the, that's like, um, but when you're looking at it, cause I do want to go back to Conan because I, that's like a huge, like, I mean, my friend, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But when it comes to like the force of history and the development of civilization in terms of technics or what I'd like to call in the digital age, like hyper technics, um, you know, a lot of work from like Byung Chohan, for instance. It's always like, is this the ultimate black pill? Like, say from a distant perspective, or any like any distant, not just like the right wing, but we mostly mean the right wing because that's what we're a part of. But like, let's say even if you're a communist or whatever, if you're some kind of like anachronistic ideologue from a, a bygone era, um, is it a black pill that the development of civilization, like in some ways, proves like the Fukuyama? like Whig history thesis of like, well, civilization is always going to build like this and there's no stopping the force of history and you got to be on the right side of history, blah, blah, blah. Even though, you know, how can you be on the right side of history when history is ending, which is kind of curious, but let's say like that argument is that basically if you're, especially a right-wing dissident, that you have no place here and that actually you're fighting against history itself and so forth. But right. Well, okay. So in that sense, I I think, looking at the, the, the cosmic picture, if you will, of where we mm. stand in this process is yeah. I, I think this is more of a Lovecraftian point. The idea that there's this inevitable decay that eventually starts to rot out. Cause, cause remember, let's go back to the very, very first chapter of simulacrum simulation. The hyper real simulation collapses. He makes reference to the Borgia map, which mm. is more real than the map of Italy itself. But eventually what happens is through the process of copying, it gets further and further removed from what's real, which then leads to its own dissolution into what he calls the desert of the real. Right. And so I actually think that if we're in the hyper-real phase, there's a small ray of hope because that means the collapse into the desert of the real isn't too far off. And for those who don't know, define the desert of... Like, but I would say that it's like, you know, cyclical cyclical history in all of its forms has, especially for the past, I would say, 20 years, uh, has influenced right-wing thought more than anything. So, I mean, some, but then the question is, like, is that an elaborate cope to say that while history is cyclical, or rather, you know, Turbo America or tur- the Turbo Empire uh, and Turbo Liberalism is here to stay? I mean, we could talk about that, but just for, before we get to that, Define for people what is the desert of the real in Baudrillard's. Right, uh, right. So so the, the desert of the real is the idea where the it's it's called a desert because it's not a part of the map. Okay. Right. So the map is decaying, and that 
that part where there's a hole now in the map, that's that's a desert. And it's and what the map is collapsing back into is the real. Right. That that it was itself a copy of. Because you, you what ends up happening is there, there ends up becoming the struggle between the copy trying to assert its dominance over what's real. Mm-hmm. And it's a struggle that will fail because it has no independent existence. Its existence is still dependent on the real, even if it would dilute itself into hyper-reality. It's a phantasm of the real. It's mm-hmm. yeah, it drives its its whole essence from the real. Yeah. Yeah. And so then how does this collapse like like in Bojard's equation? It's been a long time since I read Simulacra and Simulation, but like he talks about like the Iraq, the not the Iraq war, the Gulf war, the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where he used the term desert of the real. How, how, and it's funny. Cause like the Wachowski sisters, quote unquote, um, they use that to justify their own like uh trans ideology that, you know, the real, that is the desert is like, actually, while well, the matrix is telling you, well, actually you should, you know, take these funny pills and you know, all the rest. I can't say for YouTube purposes. So, but but how does the desert finally reach a crescendo where the map experiences, like, I guess you would say a zone of indeterminacy where there's sort of a, you know, the, the map collapses in on itself. Like, how does how does it desertify? You know, like that process, like in the, in the Amazon, when you chop away the rainforest because of all the fauna mm-hmm. was at the very top of the soil, right? Like mm-hmm. that all the nutrients in rainwater get sucked up by the plant life that has been growing for thousands of years. Um, and, you know, when you strip that away, then it desertifies and you know, soil is loose. Like how, how does, how does like culture itself desertify? How do we go back to the real? Right. Which is so, a barren so wasteland, by the way. Um, the, 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 the other uh, big idea from the first chapter of simulacra and simulation is he, 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 he couches the terms of the simulations within the context of the debate between the iconodules and iconoclasts in the mm-hmm. Eastern Roman empire in the middle ages. Can you have images representing God and divine things, or can you not? And he, so that's the sort of backdrop for where he then expresses this thought. And he says that when you get to the hyper reality of God in the sort of uh, multitudinous images of God and temples and uh, images and sculptures and paintings, uh, he says that at, at that point you get atheism because people then begin to wonder was there ever even a God to begin with? that these images represented because they're so disassociated. And he said at that point, uh, he uses a technical term volatilized, which means to turn into a gas. Uh, The idea of God turns into a gas. And then he says, you have the epiphany of power. Yeah. Like when chlorine turns into a gas, it becomes volatile and it diffuses. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think what he's saying here, right. Is as a, as a sort of like motive cause when hyper reality becomes dominant, it, it volatilizes itself into a gas. And so, right. and, and and that happens in part because it's so disconnected from the real. So it's, it's almost like um, when people on the right talk about the collapse of the Soviet Union, they like to point to internal contradictions. There was mm-hmm. inevitable internal contradictions. And I, and I think what Baudrillard is saying is that the collapse of hyper-reality is in some sense inevitable because of internal contradictions. Yeah. Well, it's it depends because there's a certain faction of the right, like matured positions that, yeah. like, well, maybe the Soviet Union was based, but uh, you know, Stalin yeah. got rid of, uh, you know, anyways, um, and of course nowadays with the the current conflict, I mean, that's a big shelling point on the political right, 
like the ones that support the blue yellow and the ones that don't the ones yeah but anyways that's that's just maybe we'll talk about that i don't know what your opinion is on it but um like anyways we can get to that in the paywall version of it so um it's (laughs) but no but i think the metaphor of of a sort of diffusion through volatility and desertification is a is a good one so like i don't know if bojir meant it this way but say like you know all of hyper reality, all of like the what what culture is, that's sort of like the megafauna that is at the top of the layer of of the soil and the sedimentary, you know, apparatus and the trees and so forth, the way it is in the rainforest. You know, very diverse species of things that grow over many years that don't tend to replicate very well. That's why when you cut a lot of these species away, it's not very good, right? It's not like in the North America. North America predict is, you know. Fauna, flora and fauna in North America, you know, has um, evolved to be little in number, but yet very easy to reproduce, you know, pine trees, for instance. So when you cut away that, the real is like sort of the desertified soil, the soil that's lacking nutrients, because all of that was sucked up by the simulated overlayer, by the sort of, what are we going to call culture, simulation, so forth. And so when you strip away that simulation, I mean, this is if, say, for example, the sort of various cultural apparatuses in the Western world, if that because of, you know, bad economic conditions or so forth, or I don't know, maybe maybe we'll enact based world and we'll overthrow the, the Hollywood overlords. Uh, um, if that if by some dramatic event, sort of the major production of, of most cultural uh, institutions were to wither away, what will be left of the real? Like, in, according to Bojard, according to even your analysis, like, in your analysis, like, what do you feel would be stripped away from people and what would be left? Like, I mean, we all have this fantasy of destroying the media and destroying Hollywood and destroying, you know, the satanic uh, whole entertainment appara- infotainment apparatus. But then what are we going to replace it with? Or what will be left if, you know, that glorious cleansing fire were to happen of, you know, you know, yeah, whatever, yeah, that, yeah, whatever yeah. that means. I, I mean, nothing. I'm liberal. I'm liberal, as Bap would say. I mean, nothing by it. You know, I'm not Fed posting, but yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So the first question is, what would be left? Um, not much. Uh, not much would be left. Um, I think what you're describing is a as a, a moment of primal Lovecraftian horror for most people. Right. Once if they never made another Marvel film, right? <laughs> yeah. But um, and so you know, there's a whole lot of ways we could explore how they would react to that. But um, what would replace it would be what replaced it before. Uh, you'd see oral traditions starting up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd see uh, those that could still write books would begin writing books again. They probably wouldn't be very good. And it'd take a long time to get back to Shakespeare, but they'd get started. Um, we'd probably have music again, you know, actual uh, bands, you know, people playing together, maybe in small communal settings before they go to large you know, more of a minstrel type setting yeah yeah minstrel yeah exactly you, you could see that again you, you might even see the return of bards right people that mm-hmm. can recite whole uh stories from memory in a lyrical form and it wouldn't just be a hipster like hipster cafe thing no it would be no like it'd real. be real yeah it'd be real mm-hmm. this the guy could just go all over the country and get you know paid to sing right so uh something something like that and so these are these are the kinds of things that I think we could see replace. And of course, what, what then would be the subject matter of these 
narrative art forms. Well, initially, people's lived experiences in the hollowed out husk of this. So it, it would be very, it would be without precedent in history because they would be writing about the end of a system that is unparalleled in history. And so you would, you, you, it would be, it would have forms and structures that would look familiar to people of the ancient past, but right. the subject matter would be utterly foreign to them. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that's what I mean. Like, what is an event like what like how does it eventually go back to the real in Baudrillard's analysis and how can we do this in our own lifetime not that I mean we what is we um I mean we're relatively powerless compared to these like right. massive culture industry institutions but it's like what does Baudrillard say like what what is the inevitable outcome because you know there's no like real like um Hegelianism in a lot of Baudrillard and a lot of yeah, these postmodernist thinkers. So this sort of like a never-ending cycle. Um, but then some people say that Hegel was kind of like a never-ending cycle. But you know, Baudrillard he has a very funny relationship to Hegel. But just that's too complex. You know, I, that's too complex for our discussion. But maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe like, what is there a dialectic in in Baudrillard? Like, is is there a moment where the desertification actually happens? Um, yeah. Right. I think, I think uh, I've only read Simulacra and Simulation. So any of other Baudrillard's work I've not read. And in that well, book. Well, Vital Illusion, he goes into this a little bit, but yeah. So in that book, he's only really describing the simulation itself. He's not talking about before it. And he's not talking about after it. Yeah. He's talking about the simulation itself. And as far as if he if he talks about the after somewhere else, I haven't read that, so I couldn't comment on his opinion. That what I would think would be, I mean, well, one obvious way this whole all falls apart is, um, you know, international supply chain disruption and energy shortages. I mean, you know, right. not I, I guess we could you know get into the tangent about Europe's energy impending energy crisis, but I mean, if you get to a point where the energy crisis is 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 uh, catastrophic. Uh, mm -hmm. And then all this edutainment just goes away because there's no power. I mean, when the electric when the electricity goes off, Hollywood shuts down. Right. right. Uh, that, that would be like the doomsday scenario, but uh, that's that's one possible way. Because ultimately, whatever whatever happens, right? The the, the operative method, the operative factor by which hyperreality collapses, is that there are events happening on the ground that it is not reacting to appropriately. So perfect case is the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. lost, the U.S. lost the Taliban because the Taliban was operating in the real world, making real world decisions. Right. The United States was making these like, you know, paranoid delusional decisions in some sort of like fourth dimension or whatever. Well, it reminds you of the current conflict as we speak. Exactly. Um. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. And, so, and so the, the question is... Wholesome chungus nationalism compelling them to like lose troops by the thousands every month um the blue yellow side because it's like we have to hold on to every little inch and because the the, the media propaganda around it will be so strong and the fact like which is a failure i would say of the kremlin in that they really have to rely on like they literally have to rely on like vatnik telegram channels and like you know strelkov memes to like give them their propaganda boost like they they're, they're just terrible at it because they're never going to compete with like these glow in the dark institutions that have influenced Hollywood and the media. No. And we do know that 
three other agencies have influenced the media. I mean, the Twitter files has pretty much proved it. But anyways, go ahead, praise. Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I agree. And so I think ultimately what will cause, and it could be any number of events, but there will right. be events that are happening on the ground that that either are not being accounted for because according to, you know, the woke gospel, they don't exist. Or yeah. if they do exist, they're going to be treated in the wrong way because of the way they're viewed rather than the way they ought to be treated because uh, from having a grounded real world look at it. So, yeah. I think ultimately just the fact that you become, you know, it was somebody in the Bush administration in the, the, the Iraq war said that we, we create our own reality. It's that's, what's going to bring this whole thing down. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the unknown unknowns, I think uh, yes. was one of the brilliant phrases by a very, very evil man, but nevertheless uh, Rumsfeld. So it's, it's almost as if, um, you know, I mean, even Bojir talks about this in like the fatal theories, right? Like, uh, it's, <laughs> uh, but I was, I was trying to look up, um, you know, when it comes to Bojir's notion of disappearance as opposed to Heigl and like absolute spirit. Um, let's quote from Bojir right now. So this is from, I believe this is from Sim Simulacre and Simulation. So he says that, Today, abstraction is no no longer... Uh, no, so this is from the essay of the procession of simulation, which I believe was in the book. Today, abstraction is no longer that of the map, the double, the, re the mirror, the concept. Simulation is no longer that of territory, a referential being, a substance. It is the generation by a models of a real without origin, a reality, a hyperreality. The territory no longer precedes the map. So that's the famous saying. It is all... So skipping forward, it is all metaphysics that is lost. No more mirror of being an appearance of the real and of concept. No more imaginary coextensivity is general miniaturization that is the dimension of simulation. The real is produced from miniaturized cells, mattresses, and memory banks, models of control. It can be reproduced an infinite number of times from these. It no longer needs to be rational because it no longer measures itself against either an ideal or a negative instance. It is no longer anything but operational. In fact, it is no longer real, really the real because no imaginary uh, envelops it anymore. It is hyperreality produced from radiating synthesis of combinatory models, hyperdimensional space with atmosphere. Then he says that um, the modern world foreseen by Marx, blah, blah, blah. Uh, soon there will no longer be any thought senses, surfaces of confrontation, any suspension of thought between the illusion and the real. So in, in other words, there will be no doubt whether something is a production or something is real. And we see this with like real life events and LARPing and how mm -hmm. even news stories are basically not real. I mean, they're, they're real in the sense that they are facticities of something, but they are not real in the sense of them being like the actual news. It's like when reporters and journalists try to make the news, like if you're some hideous Taylor Lorenz creature then, you know, then it's like, yeah. that's not good. But in other words, he's saying that the, the lattices of, he's saying that in other words, metaphysics are gone because there's no longer any overarching structure of the difference between, let's say, platonic forms, there being a higher level of reality and the real being something that is a copy. Rather, there's just an infinite series of copies and it's eminatized. And in the sense, there is no even higher purpose to why technology and the simulation itself in pop culture and so forth, there's no real logic to it in the sense that there is no overarching value of why these things exist or why they're propagated. I mean, there is like progressive, like cathedral, like I, I mean, I tend to avoid the term cathedral because I think that 
it's not really the scope of, and of course, you know, Molebug is cringe nowadays. Um, but we'll get to, we'll get to Molebug even. Um, but, you know, let, let's call them like, you know, global American empire institutions or like, you know, woke moralism. Like those things have a logic to it. But Baudrillard is saying the way that they operate, the way that culture and the simulation operates, there really is just no logic to it besides its own propagation. There is no higher principle guiding it. Therefore, we exist in like these little micro worlds. But also the way in which it is propagated no longer comes from centralized sources, but comes from um, servers and memory banks. And it comes from sort of these like little micro planets of, you know, mimetic contagions, really, you know, like they just they propagate, they spread forth. They're like memes. They're packets of information. There no, there's no really, there's no longer a cultural or a civilizational central hub to it. There's no mass or gravity. It becomes eminatized. It's everywhere at once. You know what I mean? So that that's I think is what the price of uh, what, the world that we're living in. So wait, let me just go back to it for a second. So no longer any ration need to be rational because it no longer measures itself against an ideal or negative instance. So it's kind of like what Byung Chul Han says about dataism. It's like data becomes the only thing that matters. It's not like really, um, there's no logic to it. It's just like, there's no um, shared upon agreement of what val constitutes value and why we're mining data. Data becomes the God. It becomes the, the sort of, um, you know, monolith from 2001. You know, data is everything because data is also nothing at the same time because there is nothing that instantiates the collection of data. It's like, why do we collect data? Oh, because we can monitor people more effectively. Why do we monitor people? Uh, it's like, oh, well, the managerial state has its own logic. But where does that logic come from? To who benefits from that? Oh, I guess all of humanity. But really saying all of humanity in this like one total state, it's like that that doesn't mean anything really. Because there's no value of like that particular civilization. It's like, why is this governing body operating the way it does? Why does it need to collect data? It's like, oh, well, we have to collect data in the whole world. But why? It's like, well, I don't know why. <laughs> like, it's like, well, I guess that's the way history manifests itself. It's like that's that's the Kojevian answer, but you know what I mean? Praise the fall. It's like there's no yeah. logic to it anymore. It's like, why are we doing this? Oh, I don't know. Why does there have to be a Marvel movie every year? Oh, I don't know. Like, why does Hollywood need to exist anymore if it doesn't speak to the oh, heart? Oh, oh, why, why does the movie yeah, Wag the Dog have to be occurring in Eastern Europe right now? Yeah. Well, there you there you go. Like it's but no, you know what, yeah, yeah. Busy, like no what reason. he means by the desertification of everything yeah yeah there's no reason for why the system does what it does now it's 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 sort of like lashing out in its death rattles is what it looks like right but no but but comment on that 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 oh. um that that the you know that passage from D Bojir's essay. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. What, what, the, the lack well, of metaphysics, in other words, that's a, another interesting topic. Well, yeah, first yeah. of all, first of all, this explains the rise of the new atheist movement in the late right. 90s, right? Because they were sort of a social expression of this uh, technical material reality. Um, and again, if you were to ask them why, they, they couldn't, it just is, right? For They, they were just uh, the, the, a cultural expression of, of this reality. And with with the hyperreal, which is basically you've described uh, the app, the in very detailed terms, hyperreality. It it refers only to itself because it seeks to 
define itself with regards to nothing but itself, but it itself right. is nothing, right? So that's what you said. It's it's nothing, and so it's like a Borjas paradox room, you know. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. the thing about this, right? We see this a lot with um, with men in the business world or in the military. They're always yeah. about. They're always about. Well, we have this project we have to finish, and they never think to ask, "Why am I doing this project? Why does this project matter?" It's just like, nope, nope, got to do the project. The GDP, like, though, the GDP. That's the why. GDP. Well, <laughs> I mean, Afghanistan is a good example, right? You have a lot of these, you know, sandbox bros, and they're like, you know, got to do the mission, got to do the mission. Why? Because we just got to do the mission. And then the whole mission was a waste. We lost in Afghanistan. And they never thought to ask the question, is this, can we actually win this mission? Um, right. It, 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 it's very existence uh, creates, it doesn't need an argument anymore, right? Because it exists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't yeah, it exist. Therefore. Yeah. It exists. Therefore serve my needs. Right. It, it doesn't need an argument anymore because it's, it's hegemonic. Um, and so we see a lot of bizarre behavior that people have because again, they're, they're sort of conditioned not to think why they do something because in the public life, they're just there to do what the machine wants, the, the simulation wants them to do. And so you know, if you ask somebody, you know, why do you play video games all day? Or why do you, you know, waste your time all day? It's like, well, why not? Like, like, you know, there's, there's no reason anymore. Maybe they're the true aristocrats, though. They're breaking the system. This is what Agamben says, that you just have to, like, disengage, really. That's the only option you have, realistically. Absolutely. Like unless you want to, like, fed post. But then it's like, I, I don't say you should, like, smoke weed and play video games all day. But... There, there is like something to be said about the way in which certain like uh, certain like uh, you know palliatives or pseudo activities, um, the way that they can capture you. Like for example, there was like this moment in like the early '90s or like the late '90s to like the 2000s, where you had like a lot of shut-ins. Like you know, they would play Second Life, and that would be their online world. Because the real reality is sort of like, you know, they're not very um, engaged for obvious reasons, whether because of disability or poverty or social eccentricity. You know, I mean, there's a variety of reasons why the online mass worlds were very popular and still are. I mean, I'm sure there's I mean, Second Life is still going, although it's not like it doesn't capture the cultural imagination the way it did in like 2002. But I'm saying like, and I'm reading, you know, I'm reading this author who is, um, uh, you know, me and Catherine D, we were going to talk about her. Her name was Humdog uh, on the internet. And she was a first, like, she was really a pioneer of like writing about the internet uh, and about like online life, you know, and unfortunately she took her, she sunsetted in 2008 for a variety of reasons. But, it, you know, so um, it's very interesting. And she was also on Second Life and, you know, had this weird, uh, you know, BDSM relationship there, the, the Gorian thing, if you remember that, like, it's, it's really interesting how the escape of life to the online is something, but that's, you know, another topic, but, but sticking with your example with Iraq, the Iraq and Afghanistan war, Afghanistan more so, you really think of it, there was no reason to it. I mean, okay, what I mean is that 
there was a lot of there was a lot of like geopolitical architecture that went into even from like the 80s and 90s you had thinkers like uh Zbigniew Brzezinski that said well you know you have to control this region because the Chinese are going to build the pipeline the northern pipeline that's bad that's going to challenge American hegemony so therefore you have to basically occupy Afghanistan forever but as time went on the usual logic of empires fades away because we don't live in a real empire we sort of do but we don't we live in this hyper real empire and so the benefits conferred to the average, for example, American citizen or coalition of the willing, right? The oh. average Canadian or British or French. Were the French there? No, they were not a part of the willing, at least not initially. No, no, yeah, but I know the Canadians and the French were there in Afghanistan, but not Iraq. I mean, we oh, right, we yeah. opted out of Iraq because of Kretchen, which I think was a good move. Um, I mean, he really saw, I mean, I, you got to give it to Kretchen, you know? I mean, as much as he was a, you know, corrupt Liberal Party, uh, you know, PM, I mean, well, he was... I mean, Kretchen was, I mean, God, he, he was, he was a philosopher King compared to Trudeau nowadays, but you know, <laughs> but anyways, yeah, Kretchen got us out of Afghanistan, out of Iraq, but then we went to Afghanistan, but the logic of the war during the Obama years was like, okay, we're there because of humanitarian reasons because of, you know, women's rights or whatever, but that was, <laughs> you know, that was terrible. That was, it was no longer this like neocon, um, christian larping which they really a lot of them weren't even christians right they were um never mind never mind you know you know right uh the neocons um but a lot of it was the rhetoric that was being fed to george bush by people by you know hideous schools like david from where they would say like this is a crusade this is the clash the clash of civilization samuel p huntington's vindicated the right. christian society has to go there and like body all of these Muslims because they're threatening our, you know, they hate us for our freedom though. And that was the seed. It wasn't, wow, they hate yeah. us because we're Christian. They hate us because of our freedom. And then that becomes, they hate us because of women and trans rights. Right. So, but then that becomes another sort of second order of the illusion of the simulation, because now it's like, where do those humanitarian principles come from? Do they come from Christianity? No, they don't. They come from Western civilization. Well, not really. They come from the UN Charter of Universal Human Rights, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it, bec it becomes, it comes from the civil rights regime that's then spread throughout the world, right? This is the, the Caldwell analysis. But when it comes to the illusion of Afghanistan, it really didn't benefit the American people whatsoever, apart from a bunch of soldiers that have PTSD, that unfortunately, you know, more have more have them, more of them are casualties of being taken out by their own hand, if you know what I mean, than actual war deaths in Afghanistan. Um, it didn't benefit us in terms of the oil or in terms of controlling the region, because the Chinese are gonna build the pipeline anyways, right? Because the, the mm -hmm. Taliban have cut deals with them, the Talichads. Uh, and it didn't benefit <laughs> <laughs> and it did benefit us in terms of fighting fighting global radicalization because really that was all just like a creation of them to begin with during you know the 80s with the mushahideen yeah. so it's like none of it mattered it's like why were we there for 20 years was it global policing oh not really because we really care about these people because if we were an actual empire like i mean north america in general because i include canada in this because basically we're just like an american vassal state and a chinese vassal state as well so um it's it's like it didn't like a real true imperial power would essentially create like a, a, a complex 
um, mineral mine reserve and vacation place in Afghanistan, like, you know, the Roman Empire. When it came to the resources, we didn't really build a lot of those mines that were subservient to American corporations. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. we, what are we doing? We, who are we doing there? Nothing. You know, and it was, um, it's very interesting how even more than the Gulf War, which Bojard was talking about, you know, Af- Afghanistan was sort of like the ultimate simulation of warfare. It's like, mm-hmm. why are we there? Oh, I don't know. It's like, I guess we're there. Are we fighting the Taliban? No, I mean, they're kind of like the Taliban, but they're kind of not. It's like, oh, okay. It's like. Well, well, it's it's worse than that too, right? Because don't you remember? Right now, but yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. It's worse than that because don't you remember that in uh, 2001, the Taliban actually offered to give Osama bin Laden up. That's right. Yes, because he now, fell out of favor. Yeah. The, the loophole that that Bush was was standing on, they were going to give Osama bin Laden up to independent international third parties in order to pass yes. judgment on him. Whereas the United States wanted him to be delivered to the United States directly, which is a which is a meaningless technicality because who runs all the NGOs? It's the United States. Like exactly, it's the rules based order. <laughs> it's, so, it's so the whole thing was just so nonsense. And th- this is something else too with hyper reality. You know, we all remember. You know, going back to bef- right before Trump announces his run. For presidency, he walked down the ele- he went down the elevator. Yeah, <laughs> the, the thing is, we're always left scratching our heads, you know, at the next absurdity that's coming down the pipeline. And I, I think this is something that I think we can take to the bank. Once you achieve hyper reality, all possibilities become equally probable because right. because nobody nobody's taking you know no crazy shooter is going to take stock and be like you know is this really going to achieve the goal that I want? They, they, they're, they're in hyper reality now. It's, they, that's not even a consideration that they even think about. So, you know, it's almost like mass casualty events have gone beyond ideology now in some ways. I mean, not really. I mean, there's still ideologically driven ones, but it's almost as if the spectacle of like, they've always become a homostratus, right? Like, you know, that the the Greek myth, um, where it's essentially becomes like, um, a metaphor for doing crimes to become famous. Like, yeah. it's funny because that was that line in Stalker by Tarkovsky where he's like, oh, God. Like, it was the professor, his uh, supervisor, and he said to him, oh, God, you're not even a homostratus. It's like you just want to punish me, you know, by finding the room. Well, well and so, see, because what Trump, what, what Trump did was he he sort of tapped into this, this hyper-reality that mm-hmm. was beyond politics. And they're like, what do we do to this guy? We can't stop him. He's untouchable. He's like he's operating at a higher level than the rest of us. And he just like swept the field. So what he showed is that anybody else who can tap into this cultural hyper reality can just do an end run around the political system, sweep it through, which then is what Baudrillard calls the uh, epiphany of power. So one of the things that the, that the simulation has to do uh, or 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 the machine, if you want to call it that, yeah, is as we with each new set of material conditions, we have a new set of social realities that go along with it. Because right, that's how you mesh together. Yeah, uh, and so the reason why we had, as you said, these programs in the late '90s, early 2000s that had quote right wing messages and 
left-wing conclusions was a part of this cultural uh, process of stripping down old ways of thinking, old ways of acting, and then reconstructing it in a way that it would fit nicely into this new system. Right, right, yeah. Like, I mean, even um, to, to use, like, again, I went from... Well, I mean, they, they of course hate each other. You know, I, I messaged, I mentioned Joel, but now I'll mention academic agent. Um, you know how he has like the boomer truth regime. Mm -hmm. Well, like Tony Soprano embodies a lot of aspects of that. There's this video I did on it actually, where, for example, when they did the Columbus day parade episode, um, where, where, you know, Silvio, he organized with, uh, with Carlo, like, and uh, Patsy, like they organized, like, you know, they're like, we're part of, we're Italian Americans and we belong to the Italian American defamation league, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, we have to defend our culture and heritage that Columbus represents. And they get into the fight with the, uh, the, the indigenous people demonstrating against Columbus and it's a, an embarrassment, but then they're driving and Silvio is talking about this. And then Tony just bursts out like group group, what group? You know what happened to Gary Cooper? <laughs> the, the strong silent type. Like, in other words, he's saying that like typical deracinated boomer that came from, you know, largely European immigrants. He's like, in this case, Italian immigrants. He's like, you know, what group? Like, we're Americans, you know, we're no longer in other words, our ethnos no longer matters mm -hmm. because it's all about like the good of like, well, in his case, the mafia, like the good of production, the good of like being a boomer materialist mm -hmm. that lives in America rather than lives in the consciousness of the old world, which what Silvio wants, you know, because with Tony, like Tony, you know, he only spoke a little bit of Italian. He only went to Italy once when he was older. Like he, you know, he wasn't really connected to the roots of his people the way that others were in the series like Silvio. Like, you know, so it's like the boomer truth regime is like, yeah, it's good to like LARP as your ethnicity to say like, I'm Italian and, you know, it's a Columbus day. And I go to the, you know, in, in Queens, they got in, in, you know, New York, New Jersey, the, the big, um, you know, they have the St. Mary's festival, right? Like they say, like, but when it comes down to it, you're an American that mm -hmm. makes money. That's what really matters. So, yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. And, and so. But, but I don't just want to talk about that or the Simpsons. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say that a, a lot of these, these quote edgy or whether it's the comedy skits of Dave Chappelle, whether it's the yeah. Simpsons, whether it's the Sopranos, there's, there's this, this right wing element is where America was at the time. And it had yeah. to be deconstructed and then repackaged into this new left wing product. And so this is part of the uh, expansion of the simulation as a way to explain these cultural artifacts. And the reason why you can't go back, right, is because the, the conditions that allowed them to exist in the first place are, are gone. Right. So you, you can't go back. You, you have to just keep moving forward now, it seems. But what can break, like, the Cthulhu swims leftward? And eventually I want to talk about Moldbug and your critiques of him. I know you're going through this whole thing, but I specifically want to talk about the Curtis Yarvin, like, as he is nowadays. Um, but how do you break the cycle? Is it just that you have to let things fail? You have to let people become so disinterested with pop culture and like the culture industry in general that like the real will eventually have its revenge on, uh, 
simulated? Like, like what is, you were talking about this with, um, what's his name? Oros. Um, Oros post. Yeah. Yeah. Oros post. You were talking about him. Like, how do you escape the simulation? Like you were saying, like, if you, uh, you have this good example of someone in Africa where it's like, if you live in Lagos, maybe you're closer to it. If you live in like, you know, Nairobi, you're closer to it. Certainly if you live in Johannesburg, you're closer to it. But if you live in like the bush still of like Swaziland, you're not close to it unless you have like Starlink. I don't know. Like how, like you were saying, like, how do you separate yourself from like, I guess the simulation could be what a lot of people call like the global American empire yeah. or um, they call other things and other three letter things that probably I can't, mention. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like uh, it's like, how do you escape then? Or is there escape impossible? And it's rather just accentuating the contradictions as the situations used to say, you know, like, yeah. What is the strategy here that you're out? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, obviously, some form of accelerationism is a strategy, but I, I think that the, the real, this is the real, I think, question for all of us in this time. So in, in the Lord of the Rings, you know, Frodo says, I wish the ring hadn't come to me. And then Gandalf says, you know, if, if you, it's in the movie. If you've read the books, it's there too. Hmm. You know, it's not for us to decide but what to do with the time that's given us, right? We, we right. yeah, we all wish we weren't alive at the end of the GAE, but we are. So, Going back to Uncle Ted, you made this. There's a distinction between uh, real meaningful actions, which he calls the power process, which yes are are real activities that are meaningful that engage with the world and other people, and then there are these pseudo uh, actions that we do because we feel powerless, because you know we're because the machine wants us to. What what we need to do is we need to figure out, and this is going to be hard for a lot of people because, again, we're separated from the past, is identify what are these pseudo-actions and what are real actions, and then sort of imagine imagine this this desert of the real being like the final exam test and it's like you gotta you gotta do all your all your all your studying before the final exam test so rather than cramming you know you 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 know you know you start your midterms you start preparing and by the time you get to the final exam test you're ready to go you got it because you've been preparing you know you've you in addition to your normal course load work you know what you have to do to pass this final exam test and you're doing right you're doing both at the same time you're doing your normal work to, to maintain your position in school. And then you're also budgeting for a, for a little bit at a time, preparing for your final exam. So we all got to do stuff to, to get by in life, which, you know, whether that's a real event or not is beyond our decisions in most cases. But uh, discretionary time that we have, we can decide instead of doing these like pseudo things, uh, like, you know, watch movies play video games whatever waste right. time surfing on the internet whatever uh begin doing things that are real that will be useful some point in the future like mm-hmm. you know reading books for example to to learn how to think differently how to relate differently how to escape uh this this prison of of our of our minds you know if if all we have were simulations uh, after 1945 to relate to the past, we, we would not know anything about the past. It'd be a prison. And the only way to escape that prison is to actually read about it. Now, this mm-hmm. is about culture. So we'd have to read culture, you know, read Homer, read Shakespeare, read real stuff so that you can begin to think and act 
in a way, see, because the, the reason why so many people, as, as uh, Uncle Ted points out, gets you know sucked into these pseudo actions is they don't, they ultimately don't know better. They don't, they don't know what a real action would look like an action mm-hmm. that is goal oriented to something intrinsic to them in the real world. And right. figuring out how you could do that is like the first hurdle. And it's a big one. They were provide, they were organizing in order to provide mundane services to people that the coalition forces were not providing. And a lot of these old hats, they had experience and they, they knew from their training in the eighties what to do. And of course, when they took over uh, Afghanistan mm-hmm. in the nineties, um, they already knew everything, how to do it. So yeah. Hezbollah does the same thing in Lebanon, right? They, well, Hezbollah is even more of a sophisticated example, but yeah. 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 And so what, what's missing right now is people who are dissidents, who the, the real, the real exploit here is as the services that are being offered by the GAE either get too expensive or break down or, or mm-hmm. don't work anymore. There will be a demand for that. And those dissidents of whatever persuasion who can most quickly realize this and provide their own alternative for these right. services will be very successful. But my point being is that you have people on the ground who have marketable skills who are computer people who are programmers who like are just average, like nuts and bolts, working class people. Why is it not imperative that the right wing should make cancel proof economies like mutual trust societies? Now there are people that are doing this. My, my good friend, Ben Ademilich, who is a Mormon is doing a Mormon version of it with his exit thing. And of course, you know, he got that from Nick land, the, the, the title, but he's saying like, you know, after he got doxxed and of course he's a man who has a wife and, you know, multiple children, right? He's got a family, but you know, if you're a Mormon, like they help you out, you know, it didn't impact him the way that they thought it would be because, you know, a lot of people in the Mormon church, they're based and they help each other out. And like, why can't we have those networks that are basically anti-fragile to the greater whole of society that wants to destroy us? Like, why is it not yeah. we're creating these things? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, that 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 that's the meat space activity that needs to happen, not right. the LARP, not the 2017 LARP. Exactly. Yeah. We sort of break up into our micro groups and our micro tribes, and they no longer have a sort of like huge omnipresent meta structure that holds everything together. Okay. When I the got boomers it. die, that's it, you know. Anyways, go ahead. I got it, GL. You asked what happens. What happens is gypsies versus hippies. Whoa. What do you mean by that? I was a reference. Dingada. No, no, that, that was that was a reference to one of your early uh, streams with Prudentialist. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But who would be the gypsies in that equation? No, I, I'm I'm just joking. It's a re- I'm making a, a lore reference. <laughs> oh, you're not you're not saying you're not saying it's like the going to be like the dark elves versus. <laughs> no, no, I'm just I'm just I'm making an inside joke. Um, no, but you, but when you, okay, it's an inside joke, but when you really think of it, would the zoomer leftoids be like the gypsies of the modern world? And we would be like the neo hippie, like reactionaries who are like staging these, like, you know, cause a lot of people have equated like Trumpism with like a new, a neo hippie movement, huh. it, you know, and, and like, um, they say that like when, you know, 
creepy Brandon is sort of like when the hippies woke up in 71 and Richard Nixon was president. It's like, <laughs> oh man, I guess we're going to go to grad school now. <laughs> like it's wow. Um, no, I don't, I don't, it, it will be, there won't be this consensus anymore. Right. I think what's, right. really, what's really holding America together and the Western world is this boomer consensus. And as long as the boomers are alive, because they have the money and the status and the position they can, they, they're, they're using all their effort to keep the frame where it was in 1990 and it's yeah. not working. And it's, and when they get, like you said, pill it off, uh, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a massive acceleration of trends. The trends yeah. that we're observing now are being artificially suppressed by the boomers. And when the boomers are gone, there won't be anybody in their place to stifle. Well, I'll, I'll give you a, a real maybe Gen Xers, but yeah, go ahead. they're outnumbered by millennials and zoomers though. Oh, that's right. But yet they have a lot of capital though. They do, so, but they're, but how many of them will be able to actually tie unite all the capital back together? Oh, um, true, 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 true. That's true. the question. Yeah. No, but I'll give you a very real hands-on example. So in, in like say the Mississippi river or the Ohio river, there's, there's basically dedicated, you know, traffic controllers that make sure these barges don't hit each other. Most of them or, or for a power plant, both coal and nuclear, you have all of these boomer technicians that are vital to make sure that these technique processes continue apace. Yeah. When they're gone, nobody's got that specialized knowledge anymore. Like, right. It's gone. They didn't pass it on to anybody. And well, they, so, they could theoretically. They, but, yeah, yeah, but they won't. We know they won't. But, but I don't know. Does the internet complicate, like does data recording complicate this? Like, can we experience another like, library of alexandria moment or no you mean where like it gets lost well it gets totally lost but like another like i mean i shouldn't even say the dark ages because the dark ages weren't really dark but like yeah i know what you mean yeah you, uh, like a mass well, loss of information yeah we could yeah mm, interesting because that's what i mean like would the internet and would these systems that we have in place prevent it but then at the same time um there was an interesting uh article i was reading by this nft guy that does this y2k thing where he's saying like we think that you know the old phrase that came from when we were kids you know i mean roughly we're millennials um i mean you're an older millennial i'm like a core millennial um but he you know the the phrase that we were taught when we were growing up was when you put it on the internet it's there forever but really is it there forever because there's whole archives and there's dead sites and there's like, you know, sites that have been cut off by the the Google, the Google mm -hmm. algorithm. And there's archives of like Usenet forums and, and mud sites. And, uh, you know, um, what was the big one called? The Well. Do you remember The Well? I don't. Um, well was like the first chat room, like uniting chat room thing. Hmm. Um, discussion board. And so like the, I think The Well is still around. Like you have to pay for membership, but only like, you know, old boomers on the well um you know now in the age of social media those things are irrelevant but like you know there's still people in forums um mm -hmm. but the point being is a lot of them are lost to the sands of time you yeah know, very few things are preserved i mean there there are like geo cities oh do you remember zanga yeah zanga yeah yeah, yeah. It's um it's all gone well same with uh you know my my mother was a pioneer that she was in the aol chat rooms mm -hmm. yahoo chat like you know her her and my uncle like uh 
It's like, you know, all that stuff's gone. MSM Messenger, those chat logs. Yeah. The, the, when we shared, uh, you know, Billy Talent songs, like that's gone. You know, yeah. like, um, that's what I mean. Like, it's it, these, the whole notion that it's there forever on the internet is not true. Archives get wiped by the internet collectively updating. Well, with, another thing, with, you know, Web uh, 3.0 or whatever. Yeah. Another thing that happens is if you have like a, a online like blog or news site, and you update to like new co- uh, new commenting software, and it wipes out all the old comments. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Remember when everyone updated to Discus? Yeah. Yeah, like that was... Yeah. Then all the news sites just got rid of comment sections because of like, you know, they couldn't handle it anymore. Um, or, or, you know, things change. Like, you know, for example, um, since, the, since the late 90s, like the top conservative... Uh, news aggregate site that had the most traffic was drudge report Mm -hmm. but then you know uh, trump broke his brain and (laughs) nobody goes to drudge report anymore (laughs) there you go matt trump's he sold he sold his soul um it's very funny how the savior of the right wing in on twitter is like essentially like a transhumanist like that you know that wants to sink us into Neuralink. but i don't know i think elon He's secretly, you know how I know he's secretly based? How? Because he's a pro-natalist. Because he he said this in an interview. He said, well, you know, the pleasure of reproduction is is just incredible compared to like, you know, the, 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 you know, birth control. And it's like, so I'm like, I heard that. I'm like, wow, he's based because he values life. Yes. He's a cream pie nationalist, essentially. So, uh. Okay. Yeah, no, he said this, and it's like that's how yeah, I know he's based. Um, I maybe I use that joke way too often. I gotta stop. Uh, but you know, anyways, to read from Virilio, uh, this is aesthetics of disappearance. He's talking about the evolution of the movie house and the cities, how they mimic each other, and how the cities sort of disappear. He says that, um, a projection room where they try to com- compensate for the monotony of the trip. So he's talking about travel um, by attraction of the image festival of ethereal crossing, aerial crossing, transitory deurbanization, where nomadic micropoles replace a sedentary metropolis and where the world flown over offers nothing further of interest to the point where the supersonic subliminal comforts demand the world's total occlusion in anticipation probably of the next phase flight in darkness and necrosis of the passengers the question today therefore so he's talking about how cinema invades like you know tra- traveling right on on planes mm-hmm. he says that um flight in darkness necrosis of the passengers the question today therefore is no longer known if cinema can do without a place but if places can do without cinema uh, urbanism is in decline. Architecture is in the constant motion and movement, while dwellings have become no more than amorph- amorphoses of thresholds, meaning the non-places. And how, like, you know, what do you do in your domicile? What do you do in your dwelling? You consume media. And so the dwelling loses its significance because you're always plugged into this global brain, whether it be the internet or the culture industry or so forth. And then he says... um, in spite of people's nostalgia about the history about Rome is no longer Rome, architecture no longer is architecture, but in geometry, the space-time of vectors, the aesthetics of construction is dissimulated in the spe- in the special effects of the communication mechanisms 
and machines, engines of transfer and transmission. The arts continue to disappear in the intense illumination of projection and diffusion. After the age of architecture, sculpture, we now are in the time of cinematographic um, factitiousness, literally a well of figuratively from now. No architecture is only a movie. An uninhabited motility is successor to the inhabitude of the city, becoming an immense darkroom for the fascination of the mobs, where light of vehicle speed, audio, visual, automotive, renews the glare of solar light. So in other words, he's saying that the way that we experience the city and the way that we experience architecture is essentially just the way we experience cinema. No, so for yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it's, for, it's, it's go like, ahead, go ahead. Rooted yeah. from any sort of referent, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So can, can we can we say that the French philosophers of the 20th century get the MVP? We have Baudrillard, Verilo, and Alul. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Like, so it's something that uh, Kino Corner said to me where he said, like, uh, you know, the way that people experience architecture is through cinema in that people will go to tourist traps that are essentially like, wow, this mall was filmed in this movie. Um, this place and location was in this movie, this blockbuster. It's like architecture, the experience of going to a place is now instantiated by that simulated world yeah. of cinema. And now the fact that we can carry that with us means that when we travel, it's more of traveling to the simulation rather than traveling, for example, the Baroque, um, the Baroque cathedral in Spain, right? It's yeah, no, no longer yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. But then how do we like go back to cinema? I mean, how do we go back to architecture? How do we go back to location and dwelling? Like that's what Heidegger says as well. Like, you know, mm -hmm dwelling disappears in the non-place how do we destroy the non-place i mean there's a lot of people in the you know mm -hmm. in the art world um that talk about this like how you can utilize public space to like re-territorialize it to like the needs of like you know locality or significance like what 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 is dwelling dwelling is the significance that you place upon um a location based on the culture and the the existence that you have within it right you build it mm -hmm. the dwelling you dwell within it to heidegger so how do you take a non-place that is in the public that is internationalized because you know for example whole countries are non-places like here in canada right mm -hmm. like we're basically the country that is a non-place how do you then recapture it for the service of dwelling that is the question how do you break free of this yeah i, I think ultimately and this is something I've been saying a lot on, on other platforms like my channel is that yeah. there, I understand the difficulty that this entails, but the next step after communicating online, which is again, a very important first step. Don't get me right. wrong. People that think like it, like this need to find a place where they can start moving to live together because that's yeah. how you, yeah. that's how you, the unplaced becomes a place when people live there. And, exactly. Yes. And so, you know, yeah, there's people in the UK, people in Canada, people in America, people in Australia. Yeah, I know all over. I get it. It's not going to be easy, but that I think is where the question needs to go. How, because, because if you talk to anybody online, they're going to say IRL, I'm alone. I can't show my face. You just mentioned that today. You can't do stuff because you'll get everybody knows you. You'll get shut down, and it's like, well, 
we need to get to a point where there's a place where we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing. Like it, it, it's just, um, it, it, it seems impossible though, because we're yeah. living in this time where we are separated by, um, location, geography. Like a lot of my friends are in the UK. A lot of my friends are in America. Um, you know, long distance relationships, it tends to like, you know, they're not material until you need a meet space. I feel. Yeah. Well, yeah, these, exactly. You know exactly. what I mean? Yeah. So I guess unless we, uh, unless we have a miracle where the, the boomers pull their collective heads out of their collective asses and use their vast amounts of wealth to buy land and start a compound. Um, yeah. It's going to be hard. One that's not going to get um, Waco'd. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's, well, sure. Sure. But we have, yeah. we have examples of that are less extreme that, Oh yeah. Yeah. Have, have worked out as these like parallel. So oh. do we need like Paris commune, but like based right wing version of yeah. it? Like, yeah. Yeah. That's oh, what we need. Yeah. The right wing influencer. house. I, I said this, I said this once on, on, uh, on Twitter. I, I said that, uh, what would a right wing influencer house look like? Like podcasters. And people were like, either we'll have like the highest murder rate or people were just posting pictures of like Mount Carmel of Waco. So like, mm. <laughs> um, or, or someone posted a picture of Jonestown, <laughs> but no, but I, I know what you mean. Like it, it is like, um, it seems that that needs to like square the circle for the online, right? We just need to move next to each other. We just need to like do some kind of like Auroville where no, no, that's not fed posting. I'm not fed posting, but you know, uh, the, the, um, there's, there's these, cause and effect if you do this this will happen to you um whereas there, there never seems to be any sort of consequences to what conan does even even ulysses who has a happy ending uh still you know case in point he also has hubris he tells the cyclops you know not happy to, not content to have escaped polyphemus by blinding him he has to rub it in and tell him who did it and of course the cyclops is the son of poseidon who then asks Poseidon to curse Ulysses and he wanders for 10 years. So actions have consequences. There's less. Wait, you mean Ulysses? Do you mean Odysseus? Or, yeah, uh... the same guy. Okay. Yeah, because that was the whole point that a Horkheimer and Adorno made about how reason was always with blended in with myth and like how the Odyssey is a good example because mm -hmm. of how he blinds a Cyclops and he said, what's your name? Cyclops asked <laughs> yeah. what his name is. He's like, I'm nobody. And then he went back to the Titans, to the gods. And he's like, it's like, who did this to you? He's like, oh, nobody, nobody did this to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, so that that all has this like level of uh, real, even though it is, you know, told in this mythic form, it's a yeah. kind of like a Lewisian or Tolkien esque escapism. It, it teaches you real lessons. Um, you know, reading these, uh, for lack of a better word, power fantasies from you know Howard or Burroughs. You know what it is? You know what it is? Hot take of the year. It's it's resentment. Nietzsche mm. says that resentment is the feeling that you have when you want to strike out at your oppressor, but you can't because you're impotent. Wow. Resentment leads to power fantasy. Yeah. And so, so you think the right wing is just filled with resentment? Well, like bro think, literature, like Travis Bickle, Ryan Gosling characters. Uh -huh. um, well, I, I'll just say that Edgar Rice Burroughs and Howard. Are are expressing 
in their archetypes, uh, they appeal to Nietzschean resentment to sell books. But but yet they would say that these are Nietzsche. This is Nietzschean literature. This is up there with Celine and Mishima and, and Younger and like I don't know. It, it's like pulp is very interesting because it has to be very salient and very streamlined and very like you know it, it's it's appealing to the male fantasy, obviously. But you know, I'm I don't know where I'm going with this. I think that <laughs> I think that. Like, for example, okay, yeah, Hork Hummer Dorno, right? Hork Dorno, as I call them. Um, <laughs> in, in the Dialect of Enlightenment, they talk about how reason permeates myth, and they were always co- co-communal with each other. So, for example, the Iliad is a good illustration, or rather, the Odyssey is a good illustration, both of them, of the overturning of that Greek mythic order by basically human reason tricking the gods in, in a lot of circumstances. And so that is a demonstration of like, well, reason and myth, it's dialectical rather than a linear time sequence of, well, we were mythic superstitious people that were in the dark ages, man. And then we all of a sudden discovered science and reason and boom, it's like the enlightenment. It's like, that's, that's the Richard Dawkins take of history, but really myth and reason were always together, even in the Iliad and in the Odyssey, especially you have instances of like humans tricking gods which, you know, that doesn't make any sense, especially, you know, to our, the logic of Christianity, that doesn't make any sense um, in terms of like, how, how can we trick, you know, God, right? Like, it's like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Um, But in the Greek, in the ancient world, in in a lot of these pagan traditions, that happened all the time. Like the the gods had just as much of a, you know, they had just as much of a debaucherous spirit as the humans they ruled over. you know, in many instances, I mean, you don't have to go into, uh, you know, Zeus and uh, the golden shower and, you know, anyways, um, no, but so yeah, that, that's just, but when it comes to like the modern, like pop culture pantheon of heroes, it's almost as if that, you know, nuance of logic that that disappears. Yes. Now. Yeah. That's what you're trying to say. It does. It does. Because if, if you were to say, Okay, well, there's also this idea of like fate or doom, right? So as you're reading mm-hmm. the Iliad, especially especially with Hector, because he's the one that actually dies in the story, but even Achilles, right? Because there's a prophecy that he will be killed by Paris. This is all going according to a broader script. Like it's almost like these are they've they've chosen certain courses right. that will lead to certain conclusions, which is their death. Now because it's a war, these are warriors. Of course, that's what you're going to expect, right? Right. Um, that that sense of uh, circumspection or or abstraction doesn't really seem to be present with, you know, what was it uh, John Carter or Tarzan, where it's just like, well, you know, they're going to win because the author wants them to win. Uh, they. Uh, oh, the other thing too is. There's this sense in which the author seeks to create ever more elaborate and strange situations for the hero to deal with. Because yeah, this is like The Walking Dead. Yeah, yeah it keeps going on forever. Yeah, it's kind of Daryl's never going to die. Michonne's never going to die. Yeah, Rick won't even die. But anyways, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it it the these and the reason why there's this propagation of ever ever novel experiences for the hero. Is it's it's a kind it's it's really you know 
and again, it's that strive for novelty and ennui, which is the result of ennui and a decadent civilization. Because right. novelty in itself isn't an end. Um, novelty can be useful, but there's like this built-in, because again, with this like pulp serialization, it's just novelty for the sake of novelty. And you eventually begin to realize, well, wait a minute, this, this can't possibly all be happening to the same guy. Like that's not yeah. how one man's life would work. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous. A lot of these like action heroes and or even like just like uh, spy thrillers or yeah. cop dramas or it's like, it's like I was watching um, with my folks. I was watching this Italian, uh, not Italian, uh, this Australian uh, cop drama called Blue Healers, <laughs> where it's like this little town in like near Melbourne, and it's like all this crime and murder and like drug dealing and like all this stuff happens to this little town in Australia. And it's funny because the Wikipedia, the wikipedia page or rather the fan wiki page said that it's like the murder capital of australia it's like the crime capital of australia. it's like little like two thousand people village in like you know on the outskirts of Dar of a melbourne it's like what like it, it's really you have to turn your mind off when yeah. it comes to like yeah 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 and, and so uh to to amuse right uh means to not think muse means to think um yeah. means to not think uh the Iliad, okay, because again, I, I have to compare the Iliad to this because it's the same kind of like, for lack of a better word, action hero. It's Achilles, yeah. it's Diomedes, it's Ulysses versus, you know, the uh, John Carter, you know, Conan and Tarzan. It's the the, the pulp is to amuse. You, you can only enjoy it when you're not really thinking too much about it. Right. Whereas, whereas if you read the Iliad or the Odyssey and then you think about it, the you actually enjoy it more because you begin to see what Homer was getting at. And, and it's that fundamental disconnect that I think is where we get, we end up ultimately from a Gary Sue, like John Carter to a Mary Sue, like Ray. Oh, that's what they call it. Gary Sue's. Yeah. They're called Gary Sue's. Oh my God. There you go. There you go. That's yeah. That's a good term for it. But like, is Conan a Gary Sue? I, I think so. I mean, do we ever do we ever see? I mean, granted, I only read like the first three, but the impression I get is we don't see Conan, you know, training and and you know, like like even like Luke Skywalker did. Um, you don't necessarily have to show that. I mean, we don't see Achilles no. training. So, but you know, there's a sense in which this is uh, kind of deracinated too. So if we look at like. The Iliad, even though there's this big war going on, most people, uh, because it's an aristocratic warrior society, they seek duels of honor with other warriors. Yeah. So it's sort of like, it's not one guy versus a thousand. It's like one guy versus one guy. And they're just like, you know, dueling it out. Whereas like, right. you know, Conan is like one guy versus a thousand. That's just like, bro, it's not going to happen. Sorry. That's, I mean, if the one guy has a machine gun, the other guys have bows and arrows maybe, but you know, that's, that's not what, conan is giving us it's giving us these um, these impossible odds that can actually in real life win i think that yeah exactly i think that um a lot of like modern like just like absolutely empty-headed like mass market product young and old people can imbibe in it like the marvel cinematic universe like marvel dc like cape stuff you know like it's 
it's it's almost like very childish, stupid, like action hero logic where it's like nothing can really beat them. So might as well let them fight amongst themselves. So it becomes like a video game. Thank you for listening to the Content Minded Podcast, where every Wednesday there are interesting guests, amazing ideas, solo streams, and discussions on a diverse array of topics from art, philosophy, history, and more. The free version will be available both here on YouTube and as a downloadable link on Anchor and Spotify, as well as on Substack. Each week, the full uncensored and spicier version will now be available on both Patreon and Substack, where you will have access to the full archive of both content-minded and of giant reviews where I break down interesting texts every week, including other exciting paywalled articles and good content. Thank you all. Please like, share, and subscribe. God bless. Goodbye. Help keep the content renaissance alive. Too sweet.